Welcome to Strictly Anime, a podcast for anime reviews and discussions by casuals for casuals. My name is Courtney. And I am Carl. <laughs> Depressed, are we? <laughs> oh, no, it was supposed to be like um, the narrator. Oh, <laughs> I see what you did there. I thought it was depression from uh, from our topic today, which is To Your Eternity, season one for this episode 51. As always, it'll be spoilers throughout this episode, so you've been warned. Yeah, I figured you were talking like sadness because to your eternity is just all sadness it's not all sadness not all but it's sad, a lot yeah. of sadness but yeah also just trying to emulate kenjiro suda's soothing raspy low voice <laughs> he's the perfect fit for the narrator god guy as i call him because i don't know what his name is i think in the i don't know if it's official but his title is the beholder i think in the credits hmm Interesting. Well, he's going to be the narrator to me because that's kind of what he is. <laughs> um, but yeah, as you probably caught from our opening there, this is To Your Eternity Season 1 because Season 2 has been confirmed mm -hmm. um, immediately after the show ended, I think as part of the last episode. Um, it said, you know, To Your Eternity will be back in the Avengers Infinity War <laughs> <laughs> or whatever that meme is. <laughs> we'll just return in the Avengers. In the Avengers. Um, I think it's slated for fall 2022. So about a year from now, just over a year from now, we'll get to see the next part of the story. Yeah, hopefully it doesn't get delayed because I know with this first season, it was actually supposed to come out um, in 2020, but because of the way of the world, it got postponed to april 2021 so we'll see we'll see well to start off this episode this review onto your eternity we wanted to shout out our patron kevin who reached out to us with a question about to your eternity so we'll we'll jump into that he asked out of fushi's relationships which did you get feels for the most <laughs> if i read that correctly which did you get feels for the most um do you want to start do you want to answer I feel like we're going to have the same Probably. Answer. I know. We had the same reaction to the same arc. <laughs> but, you know, I, I'll let you take the shared answer. Oh, shit. Um, Passing because... it back. Okay. Okay. Because <laughs> I think for me personally, I think I identify with his relationship with Puron, the old lady the most, especially with the, the, the final episode of the season. And I know we'll discuss it more, but just seeing fushi like he's this being who has this op power but he feels so alone with it and the fact that he tries to find companionship throughout the series it i think it culminates with his wanting to be with puran at the very end of the season um even though she's reaching the end of her life um because i think he she's proven to be like a a pivotal like mentor figure for him throughout this season and so you know seeing her quote unquote and her life at the end of the season um was was kind of sad but you know i think the the show hints that she might come back in some form but i don't think it'll be the same way that we've seen her um in these past 20 or so episodes okay wait so is your answer pioran Yes. Oh, that's not my answer. Okay. Yeah. That's, no. I, <laughs> Wait, so then so, why do we have a shared answer? <laughs> no, I said I'm sure we had a shared answer, but I wanted to go with, like, my uh, this was, she was kind of tied with another character. So we don't have a shared answer because mine's Gugu. Yeah. No, that's okay. <laughs> like, I, I, was, I had a toss-up between Gugu and Pioran, but I felt like 
you could talk more about Google instead of us both talking about Google at the same time. Wait, so is your answer Google or Pioran? It's Pioran. Okay, so your answer is Pioran. You got feels the most for Pioran's story. Yes. And then for me, our Pioran's relationship with Fushi. For me, it was Gugu. I Not only his relationship with Fushi, but also his story. And we'll get into that, but I would Gugu all the way. I mean, he's... We'll talk about each arc and, and our takeaways um, and kind of probably rank them, I would say, based on the impact we had as the viewer and the impact of Fushi. But all in all, I was all in for Gugu. I'm team Gugu. <laughs> now that I there's teams too. here. <laughs> I'm team Gugu, but you know, I just wanted to put in my two cents for Puron. So <laughs> Wait, okay, so then are you for is so is your answer to this question Puron or Gugu? Which I, it's relation, so hard to decide. Which relation? Okay, let me read it again. Out of Fushi's relationships, which did you get feels for the most? <laughs> it's so hard to say because they both have very different impacts on Fushi's life. But I think for me personally, it would have to be Puron just because of that like maternal connection there. Okay, that's fair. Yeah, for me, I, I totally understand. I think I would say Puron would be my second. Um, but Gugu is definitely my first. Again, not only because of, you know, his relationship with Fushi, but his story overall. Ugh, heart-wrenching. But there you go. Those are our answers, Pioran and Gugu. And I feel like a lot of the the fandom probably felt the same way. Um, I did a little bit of browsing every couple episodes on some of the, the general thoughts people were sharing on the various social media platforms. And I feel like the way we're feeling about each of the arcs is pretty much on par with the way everyone else is feeling. It's It seems pretty, unan not unanimous, but close to unanimous, I would say. I feel like the community would lean towards Gugu just because it's a, this hopeless romantic story. And I don't want to speak for like the whole anime community, but I feel like that's something that a lot of young teenagers, adults, they trend towards those kinds of stories and those kinds of characters. Hell yeah. I mean, look at the, the romance genre of anime. It's Oh yeah, it's, it's like a, overblown. Yeah. It's a strong genre. But yeah, there there definitely was a lot of feels with Pioran. I did see um some people saying like, Y'all better go call your grandmas right now. And I was like, <laughs> Oh <laughs> Yeah, it was sad. But let's let's jump into it because I think we're going to take a different approach to how we review this anime compared to our normal way of reviewing, which is episodic. Because this anime has 20 episodes. We thought about splitting it into two parts, but then we're only talking about 10 episodes each, and that felt a little small. Um, and the way the story is broken up into arcs, we thought it would be better to just talk about everything as one podcast episode, breaking things into arcs, right? Yeah. So instead of going episode by episode for this review, I think I referred to this series um, in our Patreon special episode, which if you haven't joined yet, please feel free to do so. <laughs> please check out our, our Patreon. We, we're starting to build that shit up because we're new to it. <laughs> <laughs> but um, just to give you a sneak peek of that special episode, I think I referred to To Your Eternity um, as an anime of sort of biblical proportions just because it's so different from recent anime that we've seen and i don't mean to like put it on this almost religious level but it 
does reflect on certain aspects of human nature and just cultural sociological behaviors. Um, but all that aside, because of the anime almost feeling like this huge epic tale in these 20 episodes, I thought it would be best to kind of split it again by arcs. And so to kind of go on that slightly religious theme, I called them gospels in my synopsis. <laughs> so I think there's a total of four arcs. Four or five arcs um, in the series that we'll go over. So some initial takeaways from this first season. I did want to share my love for this great sense of mystery in this show because we experience everything at the same pace as Fushi. We're not privileged as the viewer to see more of the world or the overarching story than what he knows of it at that point. I mean, there are granted some, some things that we naturally know about the world because in the beginning he literally knows nothing we understand how you know how life and death works we understand how different tools work things like that but in terms of the the bigger things the the grand scheme and what the ultimate goal is and the purpose for him that's all a mystery for us at the same pace that it is for fushi and i really enjoy that even one two episodes in we literally literally knew nothing except for what the narrator told us in the beginning I, I was really intrigued. I'm like, I don't know what the fuck's happening, but I want to see more. Yeah, I think, obviously, Fushi is the standout character um, of this show, and he has this sort of chosen one aura to him, almost like a Christ-like figure as he learns more about the world and witnesses both the good and bad. And it kind of reminds me of stories like The Odyssey or... Beowulf or the epic of Gilgamesh you know all those ancient literatures that you probably had to study in high school um, but I think for me what's unique about the series is that I think we talked about this in our spring impressions like it seems to be one that's focused a lot about life and freedom but I think it also particularly focuses on death and the various ways that we as humans look at that or look at death and to provide a little piece of trivia to your eternity was created by yoshitoki oima who was also best known for a silent voice and it says um on the wikipedia article um for a silent or not for for to your eternity that in a contrast to a silent voice to your eternity puts little focus on the cast's past but instead the future. Although I think both of these series have death as like a, a central, I guess, catalyst to these themes. Um, so I see that as I watched the show, I saw that a lot in these arcs, sort of death as a motivation for survival, which we see in like the first episode, death as sacrifice, as we see with March and Gugu, death as a sport with like the Tonari arc, and then death as fulfillment um, with the Puron arc. So just seeing Fushi's journey as he's learning more about death and it seems like his journey seems to focus on like allowing these characters that he interacts with to learn alongside him about how to find appreciation, more appreciation for the lives that we live. And I think that's kind of summarized with a quote that the beholder says where it's like the freedom to choose is a sacred thing that ought to be given to all. So it's just a very fascinating thing for this series to look at i also didn't expect this show to be so gory but it's yeah. not like overly gory i did want to call that out too because it's drawn 
so nice. Everyone's fe facial features and clothing and everything is very soft, um, easy on the eyes. And then when there are intense scenes, or even when there's not intense scenes, there's just these moments where it's very gory, almost slightly graphic, but it's just the right amount to make the show feel more realistic and honest in tone. I think, yeah, it, it achieves the right amount of, like entertaining violence without it feeling too gratuitous now i say like the action or the the visuals or you know like the the look of an anime should always be in service to the story and i think that's what's achieved here because even though we see images such as like the the bear god you know like he has arrows stuck in him and his eyes are like bleeding out it's not like anything that's too grotesque to look at or even with the Jananda arc when they're having like the gladiator battles, it's never like they don't focus too much on the gore because they know that's not what the purpose of the series is. Like it's meant to highlight these awful things, but it doesn't want to give it too much attention. Yeah, I feel like it represents the reality that Fushi is learning about because he's a very optimistic person. He tries to find the beauty in everything as he's discovering kind of the, as you mentioned the, the the meaning behind life and death so to have that quick just juxtaposition i can't say that word fast um of these beautiful scenes and suddenly you slide in this gory moment in between you're kind of taken out of that and you're reminded oh shit there is a really harsh side to the world going back to what you said about the Janand the jananda arc or the tonati arc for people who people like me who remember them based on the the main supporting character um when fushi got impaled with all of those weapons that was pretty gruesome to watch like they they didn't hold back they kind of yeah. showed you like straight up and, and then his eyes started to get really bloodshot just from you know him being impaled in the face and honestly every time um fushi quote unquote died like when he was march and the knocker had had him i guess in their hand and then they crushed her body but you kind of see her neck kink to the side as she's getting squished mm. that was pretty brutal too it happened so quick but you're just like oh jesus that was that was a lot to take in for a split second there so i think that again they they hit just the right balance of softness and harshness in this show which again is kind of what fushi's experiencing episode by episode mm -hmm. and i think that's to kind of go further into that i think that's one thing that's unique about the show is just the style of it and the concept it felt very like granted i know this is a sin i haven't really watched any studio ghibli movies whoa <laughs> <laughs> but it, it just i feel like it it's very ghibli-esque right? yeah with a little bit of almost like disney sprinkled into yeah because a lot of these stories i feel they take similar cues from like Disney films like The Hunchback of Notre Dame or Aladdin or even Tarzan. And I know at one point as we were watching, you mentioned how even like the music along with the style of the show, it looked kind of like The the Legend of Zelda. Yeah, the Goo Goo arc um, was very, it gave me really strong Breath of the Wild vibes. The, the music in particular, I think, kind of sparked that for me. Yeah. And this is kind of a stretch, but I also thought like Fushi's story was almost similar to that of like Forrest Gump. <laughs> if you think, <laughs> Forrest if Gump, you think about wait, it, elaborate. Because <laughs> like Fushi meets all of these characters as he progresses through his journey through life, much like Forrest Gump runs into like characters in his own life, but also just historical characters. Like they have 
I feel like in that sense, they're almost similar in going through these journeys and like they're not fully up to speed on, you know, everyday human life. But as as their respective stories progress, they learn a little bit more along the way. I, I could see the connection there. It's a very thin connection. That's why I say yes, it's, a, I, it's a stretch. It's related. I, I can see that. <laughs> Um, every time I think about Forrest Gump, I just think Lieutenant Dan I mean, yeah, Ice Cream. Or like Jen I. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I think that's one other reason that I was really fascinated by the show is just that it it sticks out so much, not just from like the spring anime that we've seen this year, but just from other shows as well. And like a little, or a lot of that just has to go to crediting the studio behind it, um, which is Brains Base. Uh, fun fact, they did My Teen Romantic Comedy Snafu. Wait, did they do season two and three? Or three, two, three, two, three, two, three, four, two, three? <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Why am I having a brain fart on how many seasons there were? I think there were three. <laughs> um, I'm not sure. Let's see. Because they... there was a different studio that did season one. And oh, then okay. the animation style changed. I think so, they did season two and three. It says here that they did the season in 2013. I don't remember which one. I think that's season two. Hold up. Now I got to look this up. Um, okay. So there are three seasons. I don't know why I thought there was a fourth. I think I'm mistaking it for the OVAs. But the 2013 one, I think, was I think that was the two. first one, actually. Because um, yeah. there was like a seven-year break in between. No, it's, I'm looking at the Wikipedia. It says first season was produced by Brainspace. Oh, so they okay. That's interesting. Sorry for anyone who is familiar with my teen romantic comedy snafu. Um, there were three seasons. I don't know why I thought four. Three seasons, and then in between season two and three, there was a really long break where they weren't sure. There was no confirmation if there was going to be um, another season. That's not the point. What I'm trying to make the point is there was a different studio that did season one, and then they switched studios, and the animation got drastically better. So it's interesting oh. that Brains Base did season one animation because it was kind of subpar. And they got better when they switched studios. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, they did a much, much better job with uh, To Your Eternity. <laughs> yeah. Um, and they also did My Little Monster, which I know you watched recently. Oh, yeah. That's a, that was a good um, one. And Durarara. Oh, my God. That's so. a really good one. Wow. They've, they've done a lot of good stuff. But yeah. They were the brains, no pun intended, behind the visual and animation style that you see in the anime adaptation of to your eternity so well let's talk op and ed before we really dive into things um interestingly we didn't get the op necessarily in the first episode we or did it was like at the end of the episode yeah, because yeah it didn't open with an op it just went straight into fushi's story although it's not fushi like we don't know his name in that first episode the name but. i think they call him nameless boy yeah. So we'll we'll call him that or something related to that. But yeah, smart choice by not having the OP because it not only does the OP in terms of visuals spoil a lot about the show. I mean, a fucking lot. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, the OP is sung by none other than Utara Hikaru, which was a huge blowout when the OP came on at the end of the episode. People were freaking out that it was an Utada song. That That's a big deal. I think the only other Utada song in an anime is the one from Evangelion that was done recently, but the I movie? could be wrong. I think so. I could be mm. wrong. There may have been other stuff that Utada did, but um, 
either way, I think it's pretty big that there's an Otada song for an anime. I'm a big fan. I was super excited about that. I am still excited about it. It's on my Spotify. Yeah, I mean, the only other work that I know of by Utada was Kingdom Hearts. So Oh, shit. That's, I mean, that's yeah. the good stuff. Seeing an Utada song in here was kind of a surprise, but yeah, it's a good song. It's but, a great fit, too. Yeah, the, the OP was like, as we progressed through the final episodes, we started to realize how much of these visuals just spoil the entire show. Yeah. Well, I mean, case in point was um, Tonari's friends turning into those zombies. I mean, yeah. you straight up see it like halfway through the the opening. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, oh, well, okay. Um, I did get kind of tripped up, though, by the quick flash of Gugu and Reen. I think there's like fire or something and he's holding her and they're kind of flying through the air or something. And I figured there was going to be a time skip of some sort or that he survived at least a little while longer because of that part. But then I guess I got kind of tripped up because I figured that like he got better and that's why you could see his face. But I think the visuals were intended to be like these ideal situations for the people that Fushi encountered. Like Mm -hmm. you see Reen... And you see Gugu, and Gugu doesn't have his mask on. You see his face, his nor- his original face. I think there's also a shot of Perona running and hugging someone. And I, I want to suspect that that's either supposed to be adult March or her sister that she lost. Mm. But, like, how can she re- be reunited with either of them when they both passed away? So I, I'm thinking that those visuals were supposed to be these um, ideal situations for these characters that did not come to fruition in the actual show. Now, I know you always love the part where you see an adult march oh my God, dance with her little so dolls. Cute. Yeah, <laughs> it's. I think in the the first half, um, she's got her little stuffed animals, and it's it's similar to the visual we get in the show after she passes away, and you get to see her as an adult because that was her dream was to become an adult. But she's kind of doing this little jive where she goes back and forth with her shoulders, and it's so cute. I don't know why. I think it's just like a really. A really pleasing thing to watch. But yeah, that never came to be. Because oh, God. <laughs> we know what happened to March. I uh, have to say, though, the, the animation in this OP is stunning. Everyone is drawn so incredibly clean. You've got those really intense action shots. I think there's one part where you see Fushi maybe shooting a bow and arrow. I think it's supposed to be in the Jananda arc. In the, the what do you call it? Why am I blanking on this word? The Coliseum? Yeah. I think anyway. But either way, he's like, I think he's shooting a bow and arrow or honing a, or donning a weapon and just looks so good. The way it's drawn just looks so great. That really short half a second shot is just so nice to watch whenever it pops on screen. Mm-hmm. Really quick. I think we forgot to mention um, the name of the song, but it's Pink Blood by Utari Karu. Like you guys so didn't even know that. <laughs> <laughs> it's so good. Such a great song. ED wise, I it's just uh, instrumental. Yes, right? it is a song called, or the song that's used is called Mediator, which is composed by Masachi Hamauzu. Hamauzu? Hamauzu? Sorry, I'm butchering <laughs> these names. Um, but yeah, there's no vocals, but I think it's appropriate just to have an instrumental as the ending for the series. Like you didn't need someone with a. I don't know, like a, a soothing voice or whatever. Probably because you have you leave each episode with so many feels that you need a second to just 
I don't know, process what you watch. So having that mm-hmm. instrumental is kind of a nice touch. I, w- I will say I don't have much to say about this ending. It's pretty straightforward. It's pretty simple. I'm not crazy, though, about um, some of the things that you see in there, like the realistic hand, like the narrator's hand with the orb or whatever. I don't know. It just It's weird going from animation to CG or live action. Like, what would you call that? I mean, it looks kind of like CG with almost these photographic, like hyper photorealistic, yeah, yeah, photorealistic landscapes and environments. And I also like I like how they also pepper in like significant objects or items um, at the end too that you see throughout Fushi's journey, like uh, the the nameless boy's chair and the carvings on the walls of his villagers that have passed. Um, one of March's dolls, I think, the dream bellflower that plays a huge part in Gugu's arc, and then you also see Gugu's mask. And the one thing I wanted to call out in the ED again, it's just you know, it's it's a simple ED, and it it, but I think it's still captivating, especially with the last shot where it shows these lead characters almost in like a shadow puppet or silhouette design, and it kind of reminds me of. Um, the Deathly Hallows from the Harry Potter series. I, I know Courtney know. <laughs> yeah, wouldn't know. <laughs> this but, reference is going to go right over my head. But if you know, you know. They they talk about the Deathly Hallows in this sort of shadow puppet sequence during the first Deathly Hallows film, I want to say. Um, but the fact that they use that here after showing all these escapes, I think it kind of reinforces the stories in this series as these sort of legends or tales or narrative epics and you like it's also kind of captured with i think it's the that cgi hand that holds out the orb that kind of triggers all of these all of these shots so that's what i got out of the ep but other than that as as fascinating as it is to watch it almost feels like this belongs in the background of a karaoke video so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's okay um i do want to talk really quick about the eye catch which is the the wall i guess that the nameless boy would draw pictures on of mm. the people that he lost in his town so it starts off of course of course with the nameless boy and with um Joan, I think, was yeah. the original dog's name. And then as an, each character that ha- plays a significant part in Fushi's life passes away, the next eye catch that pa- pops up after that has that person drawn on there. And there's a lot of space left on that wall. So, <laughs> <laughs> And if yeah. you think about it, it's a whole wall. So even if the frame gets filled up with characters, all you got to do is zoom out and suddenly you got more space for more faces. Yeah, I was going to say like after the the Dananda arc. Like, yeah, that, just fill that, that whole, whole wall. Just wall. Be filled with the villagers that passed away because of the knockers. But <laughs> uh, I, I think it, it was a nice touch. Again, kind of using what the Nameless Boy had done before, but now applying it to Fushi's life. And it helps us as the viewers keep track of each of these arcs. I don't think it's a problem in season one because we're only meeting a handful of characters, but... I imagine in season two, and if it's a season three, we may need that visual reminder that these other stories existed because you're only spending a couple of episodes on each of these characters. So it could it could get a little muddy down the road. Although they did leave a big impact on us. So I'm sure it's, it's going to be hard to ever forget Gugu or Marge. Right. <laughs> All right. So let's get into it. Let's, let's dive into To Your Eternity. Whew. 
this is gonna be quite a roller coaster of feels but <laughs> <laughs> let's go ahead and yeah jump into our synopsis and discussion for to your eternity so to begin to your eternity is the 2021 anime adaptation of a manga series written and illustrated by yoshitoki oima animated by brains base and directed by masahiko murata the plot follows an immortal creature fushi who wanders the earth after interacting with humans and developing his own will and consciousness in the process. And as a reminder, instead of us going through this first season, episode by episode, we're going to take it in the form of arcs, beginning with the Gospel of Fushi, which only encompasses episode one, the last one. Wouldn't it be the Gospel of Nameless Boy? Yeah. And Joan? Yeah, I was kind of <laughs> I was kind of wrestling with what the gospel name would be. I think I when I was writing notes for the show as we were watching, I called him Nomad Norman cuz he looked like an older Norman from The Promised Neverland. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, I just decided since we're familiar with that name, I'll just call this the Gospel of Fushi. In the beginning was the orb a small white orb that gets chucked towards a snowy wilderness on Mother Earth and takes the form of a rock until a wounded white wolf collapses on top of it and dies. The rock takes the wolf's form and struts on over to an abandoned camp where its owner, a lone white-haired boy, preps for a journey in search of his tribe, who left five years ago with two tickets to an earthly paradise while he stayed behind tending to the sick and elderly. Nomad Norman and the wolf, named Joanne, follow their trail despite the boy suffering a leg injury and learn that the tribe instead got a one-way ticket to the grave. Nomad Norman dejectedly heads back to camp, but succumbs to his fatal wound and wishes for Joanne to remember him before he earns his own ticket to the great beyond. The orb takes Nomad Norman's form and continues its own journey in search of stimulation, new experiences, and Instagram-worthy backdrops. So I don't want to steal your thunder, but I think you had mentioned this that this whole thing started because a dog died next to a rock. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of like John Wick. <laughs> Everything started with a dog. <laughs> Some of the greatest things in the world do start with a dog. Mm -hmm. um, but I have to say, this is probably one of the most impressive first episodes of a new series that I've ever experienced in anime. The way it evoked such such a variety of emotion from happiness and hopefulness to sadness and loneliness in about 20 to 25 minutes is pretty crazy if you ask me yeah i think i mentioned this in the spring 2021 impressions episode that we did earlier this year but i just really loved this pilot episode for how well it can stand on its own as its own contained story or cinematic experiences or as its own experience um it it's almost like the, I equate it to the Carl and Ellie sequence from Up because I feel like this episode does in 20 minutes what most TV shows or movies fail to accomplish in their runtimes by investing us wholly in these two. It's only just two characters, like, right? It's this nomad and his pet wolf and us really understanding and rooting for this nomad's journey to explore the world and you know getting that taken away from us only what 15 to 20 minutes after we've met this character and we're already like deep in the fields by that point yeah i mean for them to 
make me care about a character whose name I don't know, whose story I just got introduced to, whose poor dog died. Yeah, he never knows. Yeah, he never even knows that Fushi exists. And he's just sitting there waiting for his entire family, his entire village to come back from a pointless journey where clearly they all died. And then he goes out in search of them, injures himself, and then gives up on his ultimate goal of finding them. It's it's crazy. I mean, the the way they did that, it, it was a recipe for disaster, right? To try mm-hmm. and try and evoke that much in that short amount of time with us having zero context as to what the fuck is going on is a huge, huge gamble, and they pulled it off. And I understand why this is such a a well renowned manga and and anime because very few can can say they've done the same thing. Yeah, it's just really impressive writing, not just for the staff of the show, but for, again, Yoshitoki Oima, um, who conceived the concept for the show. And I found there to be an irony in Fushi being born out of a circumstance of death, right? Because he starts off at this rock, and then I don't know if we ever learn how the how Jawan died. Yeah, I think it, he, he just got injured and crawled on Mm -hmm. over and just happened to die in the right spot at the right time yeah but you know this this idea of fushi being born out of death it's almost representative of you know like the the cycle of life or the circle of life to make that disney reference here that just comes with each new generation and i think like it's always some sort of circumstance of death that propels fushi forward to the next arc and so I, it's just interesting here looking back to see that, you know, it, it all started again because of someone who passed away. Yeah, very fitting. Mm-hmm. And, you know, not only that, but I think it's also kind of ironic that, you know, Fushi is able to fulfill this nameless boy's dream of seeing what else is out there beyond cool, cool mountain. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it, 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 it pairs up well with his own objective which was given him by the beholder to again learn more about this world and to preserve it so it's kind of like even though we think death can be this final thing there is still a legacy that can be brought forward by individuals who who want to keep that person or that entity's spirit living onward I have to say, and this is this is going to be a running question throughout this season and probably probably throughout this show, the whole point of the orb, the whole point of Fushi, the whole point of the narrator doing what he did by throwing this orb onto Earth's surface is to protect the Earth, from my understanding after this first season, is to protect the Earth from the threat known as, as he calls it, the Knockers, mm-hmm. which is a hilarious name yes. for anyone who <laughs> understands, you know, the other context of the word Knockers, <laughs> a.k.a. <laughs> Look at these big Knockers. A.k.a. Great Plot. <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> I couldn't get over that when he first said that. I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, it's, I don't know if this is spoilers, but it's kind of like when they use the term Marley in Attack on Titan. Oh, because we have a family member named Marley. Not only, not only that, because like me, when I hear the word Marley, I immediately think of that. Oh, well, the, the dog movie, yeah, Marley and me. Like, oh it's, God, you know, it's always like you have these threatening characters in anime, and then they name them something that's 
really ridiculous sounding <laughs> in English, but I'm no. sure the same thing happens for us, you know, English speaking or American media probably has some weird name for something that in another culture sounds pretty silly, but mm-hmm. you just, you got to take it for what it is. But anyway, the knockers <laughs> are this ultimate threat to the earth. And if the narrator's ultimate goal is to protect the earth from this threat, I'm surprised he chose to just randomly toss Fushi onto Earth's surface instead of strategically placing him in a spot where he would grow the fastest. And throughout this show, and I know I'm kind of diving deep even just for this first arc, throughout the show, he remains pretty hands-off with Fushi's growth. He, he and I'll talk a little bit more about this, but he, he helps when it makes sense, but for the most part, he allows him to grow on his own and discover things on his own and be his own person. But if your goal is to use him basically as a weapon of defense, a weapon of defense, a tool of defense, yeah. um, then why why do that? That just seems counterproductive, doesn't it? And you don't have to answer that. It's a rhetorical question, but no, you bring up a good point. And you know, just thinking about my religious background, it's <laughs> you say that like you were a priest. Or no, something. no, I mean, yeah, me being born and raised Catholic, it reminds me of you know the question of Christ as the Messiah because you know, like a lot of skeptics out there question like if if God wanted to save the world and He brought His His only Son down to to redeem us, like why would He do that if like He was the one who created the world, right? It's kind of like that same dilemma. Yeah, right? I can see that. Um. And I don't know how the show is kind of going to address that or if it's just going to gloss over it. But, you know, even with the Beholder in this show, I can't help but think that there is some hidden objective that he has. My rationale at this point, knowing what we know by the end of season one, is that perhaps he feels that Fushi can save the world if commanded to do so, but mm. does he really want to save the world if he doesn't have a connection to the world? Because it's one thing to do something because you're told to do it. It's another It's another thing to do something because you have a passion for it. The result, I think, is going to be drastically different. He may save the world either way, but by what means and, and how much saving will he really do if he's not intimately connected with this world and have a, a driving force to do it other than being told to do so? Okay, yeah, now that gets me thinking, because, again, harkening back to the quote I mentioned at the beginning of this episode, the freedom to choose is a sacred thing that ought to be given to all. I think that's why the Beholder doesn't want to influence any of the events, um, even though I presume, maybe I won't presume that he was the one who created this world, but, like, even though he has the power, I presume, <laughs> to stop the knocker threat, he, he puts this being which is fushi out into the world to see what he will do with it because he's giving him the free will to to choose whether or not to stop this threat even though he always commands him like he tells him it, it is your objective to stop this threat but like he doesn't make fushi outright he doesn't tell him how to do it right and another, another thing we can't deny is that basically fushi is the narrator's experiment and he, mm-hmm. I think he's pretty honest about that. He may not flat out say that, but there are times he's narrating to the the audience and basically saying, I wanted to see what would happen. He had, you know, XYZ situation and I wanted to see how he would grow. Um, so perhaps Fushi may even be the, the 
test run of some greater plan that he may mm. have. Because um, I imagine maybe he's thrown orbs on other planets and based on the planet's makeup and environment and all of that, those those orbs grew in different ways. So maybe this is the first time Earth is seeing an orb and he wants to see how Earth's makeup influences the, the growth for, for Fushi. But I don't know. There's a lot of questions, a lot of questions, both with the, the narrator's overall goal and even who he is, what he is, mm-hmm. how he does the things that he fucking does. Because apparently, according to the last episode, he can talk to humans and be seen by them. So there's a lot of mystery behind this guy, probably more so than the mystery of everything else going on in the show. But anyway, I digress. Nameless Boy. Very powerful first episode, and I really enjoyed it. The only other thing I have to say, going back to The Beholder, is I think Kenjiro Suda was the perfect casting (laughs) as the narrator. Like, I think he's been in a lot of stuff recently. Like, a lot. I know he did overhaul in My Hero. Um, He was the voice of, I think, Tatsu in The Way of the House Husband. Um, so I, I think we, we've gotten so familiar with his... He was in Tower of God. Sorry, I just remember that one too. Yeah, as uh, Leroro. Um, <laughs> but, you know, that, that soothing as fuck voice of his is so distinct. And, you know, as raspy as it may be, it's also just very fitting as a voiceover for this epic tale that we see before us. Um, I also want to say... Oh, sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, like, he should probably do an audiobook for this if that exists <laughs> and i would listen to it even though i don't understand japanese but i could listen to this guy's voice all day i did find it to be a great stylistic choice to not have the narrator's mouth move when he speaks it's it's seemingly all telepathic the way he communicates mm-hmm. so it was a little weird at first to have this character speaking and not not actually use their mouth they have barely no, basically no facial expressions but i think it it adds to this air of like otherworldly being for him by mm-hmm. him not needing to even do that. So I thought that was a, a good decision. I know we're jumping ahead of it, but just the beholder's design, once we see him, he does not look like uh, your typical um, savior. Yeah, <laughs> like this godly being. He looks more like uh, a servant of the devil, which just makes me think more like does he have good intentions for this world or is is there a an ulterior objective as to why he's having fushi take out these knockers but that's that's a question that we could save for the second season or beyond you even said that he looks like a certain star wars character yeah and i'll reference that in my synopsis so oh okay well <laughs> on to the next synopsis <laughs> yeah so moving on to the gospel of march which encompasses episodes two to five, a rambunctious girl, a small evolution, a large vessel, and those who follow. The orb wanders aimlessly south, getting hit with the reset button multiple times along the way. Elsewhere, a village prepares to sacrifice a young girl named March atop a mountain to the bear god Oniguma, but her sisterly accomplice Parona interrupts the ceremony and affords March a chance to escape. She runs into Nomad Norman in the midst of a reset and decides to become his foster mother, feeding him and teaching him and naming him Fushi or Fuchan. March's escort, Hayase, recaptures March and attempts to bring her back to the altar when Oniguma himself appears in all his grisly glory to attack all who stand in his way. Parona and Fushi team up to rescue March as the latter kills the bear god in its wolf form. Hayase promises to spare the trio if they follow her to the nation of Yanome, and they naively agree. 
Turns out, Hayase is a slinky snake in the grass, as she drugs the trio and imprisons them, intending to sell out Fushi for his immortal abilities. Perona devises a prison break and intends to show her village the futility of their morbid child sacrifices, while March and Fushi are forced by Hoyase to tend to Oniguma's wounds until the bear god passes away. Perona reunites with the pair and another elderly, elderly prisoner, but Hoyase and her Hyanome homies are in hot pursuit. March sacrifices her life and gets pierced by an arrow intended for Perona, which sets Fushi off into grizzly bear mode as Perona grieves for her younger sisterly figure's loss. After informing her village of March's death, Perona convinces Fushi to nigarundayo to keep off Hoyase's radar. As they part ways, he subsequently takes on March's form, like mother, like son. I loved March's arc. I love, love, loved it. I didn't think I would because she's like my initial, initial impression of her was that she was going to be an annoying bratty child. And she was far from it. She was incredibly endearing, incredibly cute. And I just kept thinking, we need to protect her. She is so precious. She is, but she's precious, but also not afraid to just call it like it is. She She's very much a loud mouth and her parents know that and even, you know, scold her for, for being that way. But her personality is just so bubbly and so contagious that I, I really enjoyed just every episode that she was in. Which wasn't very many. <laughs> <laughs> it was only, I think, four episodes. Although she lives on again in, in one of as one of Fushi's forms. But I think it's interesting that, you know, after Fushi moves on from the abandoned camp, he his first outlet into learning about life is through the eyes of this young, wide eyed girl. Um, and I wouldn't consider March naive, uh, but I think she kind of represents the aspirations that we all had about life when we were younger, um, that kind of mentality that you know the world is kind of at our beck and call and we can do whatever we want um, with the freedom that we have. And she kind of does, like she has those aspirations because she always talks about wanting to be a mother and, and raising a family. And the question becomes like, what happens when those kinds of dreams are thrown away? And in this case, it's March having to become this mandatory sacrifice. And like you said, she, she's not like she questions a lot about like why she has to fulfill this role. And you know, it, it's um, it's it's a hard thing to kind of grasp, like why a child would be sacrificed to a god just out of a sense of tradition rather than really questioning the reasons behind it tradition for tradition's sake mm -hmm. i i think watching march's arc and, and her desire or her long-term goal of wanting to be a mother um kind of made me realize that in a certain way fushi helps fulfill these main characters goals so she wanted mm. to be a mother didn't get to do so but she basically was a mother to fushi teaching him some of the initial basic things that that he learned as a growing human i guess um even in gugu's art there was this longing to be part of a family um because you know all he had was his brother and then his his brother abandoned him and through fushi i mean he he calls fushi his younger brother and even though he didn't get to be with his own brother his goal was kind of fulfilled through through fushi so i think march shows uh like the march's arc shows us that Fushi plays a bigger role than just saving people's lives. He also impacts 
their lives as they're also impacting his life and helping him grow. Yeah, I think that just harkens back to what I said earlier about, you know, Fushi helps these characters kind of find appreciation for things in life that we can sometimes take for granted. And yeah, I can see now that he did provide uh, March uh, with an opportunity to be a mother. And like we see that countless times throughout this arc of how nurturing or how protective she can be, even with taking care of the um, Oniguma, the, the bear god body right before it passes away mm -hmm. um but then we see that potential just ripped away again because of this morbid tradition that no one really has a full understanding of and i think hayase says um at some point in this arc a legend that says freedom or like she mentions a legend that says freedom awaits in the world after death and i think she's saying that to march because march is so kind of concerned about being the sacrifice but the question is like why wait when you can have that freedom now to do what you want and like why are you taking away this freedom from a young girl who has like these high hopes and and dreams yeah and i think another thing i really liked after seeing nameless boy his arc and then seeing march's arc come to an end is that they the, the way that they portray heaven i guess um or the afterlife is like you get everything you wanted even if you realize that you're dead and that this isn't truly the real world, you still get everything that you wanted because with March, we see her grow up and I guess kind of become a mother-ish to her dolls <laughs> that are now alive <laughs> to a certain degree. Mm -hmm. And she's reunited with her parents. And that, that was one of her driving forces throughout her journey is to be reunited with her parents. So seeing, seeing March excited about that reunion after she dies and then realizing she's dead and then getting upset that she didn't want to getting upset because she didn't want to die yet. And there was so much she wanted to do. That was brutal. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of a, a bittersweet moment. Each time these characters die, like with Gugu, you see him get his original face back. He feels confident. He gets to be with Reen and his, his adoptive family. And then he comes to the realization that wait a second, this isn't what's supposed to be happening. My face is gone. Um, and then him longing to to be back in the real world. It's like, I don't know. It's it's weird that they did that. It's weird that they made the choice to give them everything in the afterlife, but still allow them to have the, the awareness that they have died and they have passed on and then still feel the grief, um, the regret, the, the, the longing to, to be back in the real world does that make sense like it's just it's an odd combination because you 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 think that they would just have them pass on be in this beautiful situation and then their souls would would move on from there but it's almost like they're kind of stuck yeah again i think it, it just harkens back to you know as much as these are the things that you kind of wished for in your life like things that fill you most with regret i think it's through those through those regrets and those, I guess, sorrowful situations that you really do get to experience life. And I think that's the point of those scenes. Like, it's so easy to, you know, get to go to this afterlife and have everything you wanted. But is there really a, a reward in that, if mm -hmm. that makes sense? I think that goes hand in hand with the, the balance they strike with the gore to remind us of the harshness of the world. It's also just the harshness of the reality of death. Um, not only that, but not not none of these characters, I would say, are, are perfect. I, I think they all have their faults. And I say that because 
at the end of March's arc when Perona wanted to commit suicide, feeling like she couldn't protect anything, that was that was rough. Like Perona, in our eyes as the viewer, has been a great character, but she has this flaw of basically dealing with all the loss that she's been through and not being able to to kind of get through that. And then on top of that, at the very end, when she has that shot where she could hit Hayase with her arrow and she misses because they do tell us in the beginning of this arc that she's not the greatest when it comes to aiming her bow and arrow. Um, I thought that was very interesting too because it, it just, there, there's no, how do I describe this? There's There's no miraculous moment, I would say, throughout any of this show. Other than the fact that the dog happened to die next to a rock starting this whole story, mm-hmm. I think there's no real miraculous moment. Like we get in a lot of anime where in the, the climax of a story, suddenly the main character can pull some shit out of his ass that he wasn't able to do before and everything works out because now miraculously they've saved the day. That doesn't happen here. And again, even in Perona's last moment alive that we see her in, she has this opportunity to kill Hayase, who took everything away from her and is destroying everything. She takes the shot and she still fucking misses it. That's the reality of life. She's not suddenly going to get better with her bow and arrow just because she went on this journey with March and Fushi. She's still bad at aiming and she still misses. <laughs> and I, I, I don't know. It's like it's so it's so frustrating to watch, but really interesting to watch at the same time. And not only that, like Perona, we learn dies at Hayase's hand later on in the yeah. story um but yeah it just reinforces that this is reality that these characters have to face there's no like you said magical thing that'll work in their favor not even a narrator who can basically control everything <laughs> <laughs> yeah because he's he's all pro free will at this point so i did really appreciate the the very final moments i guess you could say of the march arc in that scene where Pioran asks for um, fruit and Fushi turns into March, climbs up the, the tree and throws down the fruit and tells her to say thank you the same way March told Fushi to say thank you. That was really sweet and it, it kind of made things come full circle. It helped us realize that through these vessels, is that what the narrator calls them? Mm-hmm. Um, through these vessels, like the, the characters themselves may be gone, but they can still live on through Fushi, not only physically, but also metaphorically through their their abilities um, that he uses to then save the world. So they, they get to play a bigger part in, in protecting the world than they ever thought they would, even if it's indirectly through Fushi. Yeah, again, it's again, their legacy that lives on um, in his journey. So that, in a way, they, they're never really conquered by death. They're never really gone. Yeah. Even though they kind of are Is that a Star gone. Wars reference? <laughs> oh, yeah, I guess so. <laughs> never really gone. Moving on to The Gospel of Gugu oh God. Part 1, which is going to encompass episodes 6 through 10, Our Goals, The Boy Who Wants to Change, Monster Brothers, Deep Memories, and New Family. Fushi runs into the elderly prisoner from before named Pioran, who continues teaching him about the ways of the world when they are attacked by a mysterious Groot-like creature in the forest that steals Fushi's memories and his various physical forms. Fushi's creator, Beholder Palpatine, appears to his orbital offspring and aids Fushi in defeating the creature, affirming his mission to preserve the world by keeping these monsters, a.k.a. knockers, at bay. Fushi and Puron reach Takunaha, where her boozy lover runs a restaurant with the help of a masked young boy named Gugu. We learn that he was abandoned by his older brother despite their shared dream of rolling in bank. 
Murphy's Law makes matters worse when Google Dolls saves a girl named Rain from getting final destinations by a log and gets his face scrambled beyond recognition until Boozman tends to his wounds and makes the mask for his face. Rain, who happens to be Google Doll's crush, shows up to Boozman's bistro infatuated with Fushi, which motivates Google Doll to work harder to impress her. He temporarily leaves after learning Boozman modified him with a booze belly, but falls victim to endless discrimination by the townspeople as the restaurant falls victim to Fushi's shit cooking. Google Doll contemplates using a ring Reen gifted to him to immediately start swimming in wealth and bitches, but decides to give it to his brother instead, who has become the village drunk. Google Doll is apprehended by some thugs in his aimless wandering until Fushi rescues him in Oniguma form and earns his trust. Google Doll teaches Fushi about the concept of death as Reen arrives to check up on them, and prepubescent, and prepubescent puppy love ensues. Later, the boys help Reen escape the clutches of her maid intent on taking her back to her old money home when Fushi is suddenly attacked by a knickknocker. Google Doll uses his booze belly to his advantage and emits a flamethrower attack from his mask to save his adopted brother, but not before making a drunken fool of himself in front of Reen's family back at Boozman's Bistro. Google Doll decides to return to the restaurant and serves as a mentor to Fushi over the course of four years. Beholder Palpatine tries getting his orbital offspring to continue his journey, but the stubble-faced Fushi refuses after finding comfort in his newfound family. I'm going to have a hard time talking about Gugu because I love Gugu so much and we all know what happens. Um, but as I mentioned earlier, this whole arc has very strong Zelda Breath of the Wild vibes from the music to the aesthetics, um, even to the the blonde characters we have here. Hmm. Uh, so I really, I really liked that. That was nice. But I think the theme here for Gugu's first part of his his story is be careful what you wish for he got his wish to become someone else who lives in a mansion but it came at a cost of his own identity and we see him struggle time and time again with you know trying to identify either with a human or with a monster similarly his brother seems to be making a like a get rich quick type of wish but it came at the cost of losing gugu's trust and getting into a bad situation with bad people and pretty much hitting rock bottom yeah, I kind of looked at it again from this biblical perspective where uh, Google's older brother, Shin, is kind of like the um, parable that Jesus told in the Bible of the prodigal son. And in that case, it's kind of like you don't know what you've got till it's gone. Um, but that's an interesting thing that you can bring up the point of Google getting what he wants, but not in the way that he um, had envisioned I kind of got, as you got, like, Legend of Zelda vibes, I almost got, like, Hunchback of Notre Dame vibes. Yeah. <laughs> a little bit of Aladdin, too, with the story between him and Reen. Um, and I think, like, this initial arc, the way I looked at it is kind of learning to accept your unique and individual traits or what makes you you, despite, like, what others may think of you, and that your potential is not limited to what's affecting you in the present. Um, and you kind of see that because I think there's one point where Gugu tries to explain to Fushi what it means to be ugly. <laughs> and then <laughs> Fushi kind of just questions like, what is ugly? And I think that kind of plants something in Gugu's brain, um, even though he feels so dejected from like the townspeople that it's not his physical appearance that makes him human. It, it's It's what's kind of inside. And then this whole thing with, him wanting to be with Reen, but he's not he's not like 100% on that because they kind of live in different worlds where he's like this 
almost lowly peasant and she being of like nobility but then we see that on the flip side with reen where she all like she too doesn't want to be confined to this world of old money <laughs> it's literally aladdin and jasmine yeah yeah um and i think that's kind of what brings them together is that they have this mutual understanding of wanting to break beyond their bounds plus Gugu never wears a shirt just like Aladdin. They even comment on it, I think, in the latter half of his story when he's going to the birthday party and they're like, maybe we can even get him to put on a shirt for the party. <laughs> and instead he puts on like some like chest armor. <laughs> but anyway, um, I feel like Gugu's arc in both halves, we learn a lot about Fushi. Um, I think we... They, they take the time to explain a lot of things that I initially had questions about. Case in point is Fushi's clothes. I was like, how do they work? Are they just a part of his body because he can transform as the person when they died, wearing what they were wearing? And then they immediately went and answered that question um, by showing him kind of like ripping the clothes off of his body or detaching them from his body. But they are real clothes because then we learn later he can recreate real items Mm -hmm. in the way, the exact way that he was first stimulated by them. So we get multiple instances of that throughout the the Gugu arc, and that helps us kind of understand Fushi better as he's also learning about himself better. Because again, as I mentioned earlier, they keep this air of mystery by not allowing us to learn anything more than what Fushi has already learned. And then we'll get to it in the Tonadi arc, but I think we start to learn more about the Knockers in that arc versus learning more about Fushi in the Gugu arc. The kind of comment on the Knockers, like we... I guess we get the first instance of the threat that they present um, in the Google arc. And I was kind of thinking of like what they represent. Cause it's not that they're just this scary wooden monster that appears out of the forest. I think in terms of Fushi's journey and what the beholder is trying to accomplish, the knockers sort of represent a removal of that, which makes us human because we see that it, it takes away Fushi's memories of his forms. I think in this first part, didn't they, they take away March? Yes. Yeah. Because the knocker shows up as March. Mm-hmm. And then later on, we'll see in like the Tonari arc that the knockers are able to turn humans into zombie-like creatures. And so they're only relying on primal instinct. So it, it takes away the human trait of expressing feeling or emotion or purpose so when you think of the beholder's mission for fushi which is to preserve this world and take out the entity impeding this objective like there's still i i want to say there's still some ambiguity with that mission but if you you think about it on this i guess higher level it makes you think of like the credible threat they present to humanity by again taking away the the things that make us human or that really give purpose to our lives. I want to go back real quick. Cause I, I wanted to comment on one more thing about us learning through the Gugu arc about Fushi's abilities. Um, I really appreciate that they, again, in service of the air of mystery in the show, the narrator tells us everything we need to know. Like they, they anticipate what our questions are, are going to be. And the narrator flat out gives us the information but he doesn't do that until after we've seen something happen. So again, going back to Fushi being able to create things, I think the initial um, the initial discovery happened when Gugu 
wanted him to make a tool and so they like rub it against his skin i think it was a stick with the fire they rubbed it against mm-hmm. his skin he was able to recreate the stick just not the fire but they realized that's how fushi is able to create things and remember how things are formed was through that pain or aka that stimulation and then after we see that revelation that's when the narrator takes the time to explain that the more stimulation fushi has the more prevalent a memory is and then the more likely he's able to recreate that thing so he could have told us that from the beginning he could have told us that before it even happened but they want us to again experience these things in the same way that fushi is experiencing them and then once we've experienced them the narrator comes in to add a little more context yeah because i get if he were to just tell fushi like oh you can make this um it takes away that stimulation aspect it also takes away yeah the the growth opportunity for fushi and for us as the viewer and again the free will for fushi to to do these things as he pleases figure that shit out on his own (laughs) (laughs) by the end of this first half of gugu's arc i was kind of on the fence about pioran and booze man because i felt like they had potential to be good good people but they were kind of shitty people by this point in the story um mostly because Boozman saved Gugu, right? That that's fantastic. That's awesome of him. But it felt like he did so because this was an opportunity for him to have an experiment. Um, I felt like he kind of took advantage of Gugu's situation and turned him into his own little experiment with the whole like booze in the stomach thing and making his face look all crazy. Although I'm sure it would be very hard to restore someone's face that got crushed under a log. And then Pioran helps Fushi, but it's kind of like a bitchy old woman saying that she's only upset that Gugu's gone, um, you know, after Gugu kind of storms out uh, because no one will cook dinner for her for her now and she likes his cooking. Not like, you know, I care about this kid and his well-being. I think that's just their personalities because as we'll learn by the end of Gugu's arc, they are actually pretty decent people. They're just not perfect, which is, again, a theme of all these characters. No one in the show is perfect. Everyone has their flaws. It's just uh, looking past that and seeing the potential that they have in them. I think we also forget that uh, Puron was a prisoner um, before we go into Gugu's arc. Yeah, right? when she's first introduced in March's arc. Yeah, I completely forgot about that until we got to Jananda and they remind us, reminded us that she was originally a prisoner. Although, I don't think we ever find out why, do we? We do. She poisoned some people. Oh, she, she killed like okay. 10 people by poisoning them. Oh, that's them. Right, right, right. I don't know if they necessarily explained why she poisoned them. But again, it's like you're conflicted because you, you've grown to love Pioran. You see how much Fushi loves Pioran and the things that she does to help him grow. But you can't deny that she's not perfect. She killed people, even though Fushi is very much against killing. So that's kind of why I felt a little on the fence by, you know, halfway through Gugu's arc about these two characters. Moving on to the Gospel of Gugu Part 2, which encompasses episodes 11 through 12, Gift from the Past and Awakening. Reen's sweet 16th approaches, though she is conflicted about her arranged marriage since becoming attracted to Gugu doll, who himself deals with the return of his prodigal brother, Shin. He spurns his plea for forgiveness, though Shin gives back Reen's ring, much to her shock as she realizes how long Gugu doll has held on to this trinket. Fushi encourages Gugu doll to f- confess his feelings for Reen at their party despite his peasant ranking, and the two share a tender moment as they recall the final destination log that intertwined their fates. Their romantic scene is interrupted by a knick-knocker attack, springing Fushi into action. Although he and the old money mansion are overwhelmingly subdued by the discount Groot, Gugu Doll and Reen attempt to save their mortal acquaintance but get caught in the rubble as Gugu Doll uses the last of his hamon to protect his true love. 
Fushi suddenly takes on Goo Goo Dolls' form, sending him into an emotional frenzy that fucks up his forest-formed foe and sends it into the depths of the sea. Fushi later covers up as Goo Goo Doll when a recovered Rin looks for him and decides to continue his journey alone so no one else loses a life at his hands, though Rin knows in her heart that Goo Goo is gone gone. There's a Star Wars reference in this arc, by the way. Uh-oh, what is it? It's when Boozman says, I have a bad feeling about this. And he was right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that foreshadowing. Um, so there's a four-year time skip here. And Gugu goes into JoJo mode and becomes crazy ripped for a teenager in four years. Um, but the key question I had was this four-year time skip where the knockers didn't show up at all. The whole point of, again, Fushi and, and the narrator and all of this is to protect the world from this threat known as the Knockers, who have the potential to destroy the Earth. But damn, talk about the slowest moving antagonist in anime. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I, my guess is that the Knockers are sim in a similar situation to Fushi, where they also need to grow and learn and, and expand their abilities. And as they do so, they become more and more of a threat. But thank God that's the situation because Fushi would have died. Well, not that he can die, but he would have lost a long time ago if they were a decently quick-moving threat to the Earth. They're, they're super slow. I mean, again, four years without them popping up at all is kind of odd. Like the White Walkers in Game of Thrones or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> um, which is odd because in the Tonari arc, the Beholder says that they're always like, a good distance away right um so for them to go from like taking four years to catch up to him to suddenly like being almost like 10 within 10 feet of him is kind of a stretch unless like that's just meant to show like how much they've developed alongside fushi and in their like intelligence and in, in their strength and i think with this four-year gap fushi in a way although he has learned He's learned how to speak better um, instead of like kind of speaking in caveman, caveman. <laughs> like like Kevin from the office. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Take time, see world. Um, <laughs> like he's learned to, to speak the language and all these other things that humans like kind of know. Um, he's grown a little bit complacent in his journey because his journey has always been about being stimulated enough to to face down the knocker threat. Obviously, this this will dramatically change when they arrive um, during Rin's party, but I think it, it was a way for him to get knocked back into reality. I just said knocked. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, I mean, to that point, Fushi ages up and gets facial hair and pimples and is basically going through puberty. And I didn't know he could or would age. And yet again, I appreciate the narrator answering all of our questions up front. You ask yourself, how is Fushi able to age? And then he comes in and says, well, let me tell you, because I know you have this question. Uh, I guess he decided not to transform for four years um, or create anything, which was interesting. Uh, and that, that allowed his body to age normally. That's a very interesting choice. It's a very odd one, too, uh, from the writing perspective to say, yeah, he can grow at the normal rate of a human if he just doesn't transform into anything. But if he does transform, he goes back to the original form. Um, they didn't need to do that, but it's interesting that they did. Yeah, like, it, does, it, does, it, does it lend enough to the story 
to say, yeah, Fushida just didn't transform for four years other than just him, like you said, becoming complacent. I feel like it. there's a thematic element to it. Like if Fushi just continues being complacent, he won't like like he won't find purpose in his in like why he was brought on this earth like he will just kind of subsist you know what i mean yeah and i also this is just me thinking out loud about why they would make this writing choice but maybe it's it represents fushi's not detachment but the difference between fushi and a regular human like they they live their lives they um they are mortal they will die someday somehow and they can't create things they they can't transform all of that but i think one of the biggest things that that maybe besides the death part that maybe separates fushi or kind of puts up that wall between him and and the humans is that he can't age the way they can he could mm-hmm. if he just chooses not to be who he truly is and not transform and not create anything. Um, but at the end of the day, it's all a facade. It's all just one big lie, basically, because he will transform back to his original form or that that person's original form um, and then de-age. The whole aging process would have been for nothing. And I think it's just highlighting that, again, Fushi has this unique ability besi- like besides, or I guess with him being immortal, like, Again, he has a greater purpose in this story, but that purpose isn't fulfilled if he just chooses to live like other humans. Like he has a potential to actually help humanity in this world, but it won't improve if he's just sitting around like a lazy bum. <laughs> Although he's not really a he's not really a lazy bum. He's just he just wants to spend time with these people that he's learned to care about a lot. And then it obviously gets all ripped away from him in these two episodes. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I, I'm hoping that they'll they'll explain more about it because we do see him, spoiler for the end of the show, the last moment we see of Fushi is that apparently decades have passed and he is much older, probably, I don't know, in his 20s or 30s by, by then. So he has clearly chosen not to transform for decades. And I, I, I can't wait to find out all about that and why he made that decision. But just something that we learn in this part is that he can age should he choose not to be who he actually is. We also get Gugu's brother, Shin, as you mentioned, coming back, um, and Gugu tells him off. And it's one of the few times we see Gugu angry. But he ends up thanking his brother because being abandoned led him to the life that he is now, where he's really happy. And I, I mentioned this part for two reasons. One, the one of the things that compels me the most about Gugu is despite everything this kid has been through, he always finds the silver lining. He always tries to look at the positive. He never allows himself to be truly defeated. He has moments of defeat, don't, don't get me wrong, like where he um, kind of feels really empty and, uh, you know, like he, he can't accomplish anything. But they're very few and far between and they're very short-lived. He just has this air of positivity around him. So to see him actually angry instead of, overjoyed that his brother comes home is very unique thing for Gugu. The other thing that makes me want to mention this part is that he tells Shin he's been living with Pioran and Boozman and really likes it. And as I mentioned earlier, at first I didn't like Pioran and Boozman because I felt a bit off about their questionable choices. But seeing Gugu ultimately accept them as family made me accept them as well. Made me kind of see the things that he saw in them. And again, 
it's all about the show not considering or considering people who are quote unquote good um even though they're not a hundred percent good it's it shows how complex people are but at the end of the day you still accept them and, and you you love them for who they are and i think the thing with shin is he kind of represents this this easy way out um in life whereas gugu is built upon these life experiences He's built different <laughs> <laughs> um so that's another i think there's a commentary in that about again getting the most out of life whereas you know i think we saw in the beginning that gugu and shin had made enough money for them to be well off but then shin decides to just take that all on his own and that leads him into a dark place whereas it again it, it informs gugu's journey and gets him off to a place better than when he was left off by his brother. Um, so I get, I think Shin represents that part of Google's life where he could have, if he continued just to like sulk and not do anything and try to live off, live off the land or whatever, um, he could have ended up like his older brother. But again, Google is much better than that. I was really happy when Gugu finally tells Reen that he was the one that pushed her, but it was to save her life and that he was injured in the process. I'm kind of sad it took this long for that realization to happen, but I'm glad it did. I, I would have been probably a little salty if Reen never fully, fully realized that he's the reason that she got injured, her small little injury, um, but was also, you know, her, her life was saved. Um, so I'm, I'm glad they had that moment. And really the whole birthday party scene or I guess a couple of scenes because it was in a couple of episodes was so bittersweet because you see you see Gugu wanting to be part of Reen's life but being so different from everything that she's all about that he simply isn't accepted by anyone at that party. He's treated like a monster yet again. Um, although this time he takes it a little bit better than he did when he went back to that farmhouse and that little fucking brat kid kept being mean to him. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Ugh, even though... Okay, let me just say on the side here. That kid was a fucking brat. And the dad was awesome because he kept trying to accept Gugu into his family, but that little brat kept ruining it. Just punish your damn child. Tell him <laughs> this is horrible. You cannot be this way to other people. He's a good kid even though he's got a different face. Just be a better kid, damn it. <laughs> <laughs> I thought, I think that's in line with like parenting doesn't exist in anime. Yeah. Like <laughs> I think we can have a whole slew of bad parents in anime. That's why, like, yeah, you don't see parents in these anime with odd situations with kids. But then here, it's like they don't even parent when they do exist. I would have been like, shut your mouth. We're taking this kid in. He's a good kid. He's a better kid than you are right now, let me tell you. Yeah. But yeah, poor Gugu. And, I, I thought that he did a great job of trying to, again, see the silver lining and everything, see the, the positivity in being at Reen's birthday party, even though you could tell there were certainly moments that really got to him, especially when he, I don't he wasn't pushed into the fountain, but he tripped into it because the guy was kind of coming at him, right? Mm-hmm. It was, all of that was just it was sad. It was so sad. That was sad? <laughs> okay, <laughs> yeah, that was part of the sadness I experienced in this arc. It, it, was, yeah. it was the... Uh, the it was the preview to the real sadness we got at the very end. And thinking about that more about this party and what this mansion represents, I think it there's a little bit of symbolism in, in seeing this mansion crumbling um, due to the, the knocker's assault. It's, 
I think represents these old archaic traditions crumbling to pieces. Um, and then it, we just see Reen and Gugu in the rubble and it's just them two, right? And I think him kind of holding his weight under the rubble is kind of like his rejection of what this society thinks of both of them because ultimately all that matters in this case is their love for each other despite like what the societal and cultural whims of their world might be and to piggyback off of that this also goes back to his original wish again be careful what you wish for this him being at this party is him seeing firsthand everything he wished he had and he's probably thinking to himself thank god i never actually got it he did kind of get what he wished for in a different way and by sacrificing a lot, but what he got was so much better than what he originally thought he wanted, which was this life that Reen has, this mansion, this status, this money, um, and he sees how unhappy she is to the point where she literally runs away multiple times from that life because mm-hmm. it's not what she wants. Um, so, yeah, I just, seeing him in that that situation, seeing him in that environment was very interesting. I mean, the kid already st- sticks out like a sore thumb, because he's fucking Jojo huge and wears a mask. <laughs> um, but also just him culturally in that environment. Um, he definitely was different. Yeah, it's like uh, Aladdin, but with a rejection of wealth at the end. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true, actually. That's a good point. Um, but yeah, this show builds you up only to tear you down. Because in that fight, Goo uh, dies. And I can't handle it. Like, I literally wrote in my notes, I can't handle this show. Because <laughs> they built up such a beautiful, cute love story between Gugu and Reen. I was rooting for them the entire time. And then in the very last moments, they take it all away. Granted, they, they had their confession. They knew that they loved each other. That's what's most important. But it's still kind of important that you get to live a life together because Reen says at the end to her father that she's never going to marry because the guy that she loves is gone. And I'm like, damn, that's amazing, but also heartbreaking at the same time. Yeah, I get, it makes sense because this is all these stories are what pushes Fushi forward. So <laughs> as Death. morbid as it so yeah, as morbid, morbid as it sounds, like there's a cost to his his development. But I think what got me the most about this climax with Gugu and Rain is there's two things. So we we see Rain and Gugu like they finally get to the kiss, although it's hidden because like she kisses him through the mask. And I think the dramatic reveal of Fushi inheriting Gugu's form was such a unique way for the show to let the audience know that Gugu has passed even though like we haven't seen it because we we have an understanding of why he has these forms. And so for the show just to display that he suddenly has Fushi's form, I think that carries a lot. Gugu's form? Gugu's form. What did I say? Fushi's form. Oh, (laughs) (laughs) I'm getting so emotional that I'm forgetting these characters. But like for them to just show him inheriting that form, I think it carries just a lot more emotional weight. And on top of that, Fushi wasn't there to even say goodbye to like it. I don't know. That's what got me. One of the things that got me the most um, with with Gugu's death. That I I have to agree. I I didn't even think about that. That was a very powerful way to signal his passing. Not only that, but we learned that Fushi through this arc. We learned that Fushi can feel the pain of other living creatures near him, and the fact that he's feeling Gugu's pain 
up until the moment he dies and he's just in this complete panic mode because he's like i gotta fight this knocker but my friend is in a lot of pain and could die i man to be fushi in that moment had to be absolutely tormenting yeah it's like a between a knock and a hard play oh <laughs> but uh the second thing and this is just the musician in me is the music at this part is is what really drove me to get like all these feels um and there is as far as i know there hasn't been a release of like the official soundtrack for the series but there's a youtube channel um samuel kim music he does like covers of all these um different film and tv scores and he did a rendition of what they call Google and Reen's love theme. And again, hearing it in the show, it's, it adds so much more weight to this scene. Um, especially because like the music builds up and then it suddenly stops and then Fushi turns into Google and then it picks up again. And then this, the music just enters this like somber, um, this somber section. And I don't know, man. Like, that almost set me off. Like, I was nearly on the verge of tears. But, again, that's just the way that I experience music um, when watching these things. So, it the song, again, is it's a cover on Samuel Kim's music channel, but it's there for your listening pleasure until the soundtrack is released. And on top of that, it just major credits to the series composer, uh, who's Ryo, Ryo Kawasaki, to have this song for Google and rain that just tugs at your heartstrings yeah so to go back to your question kevin um gugu's arc gugu's relationship with fuji his story everything about gugu to me was the most feels out of this entire i was gonna say this entire show but for this first season it's it's gonna be gugu for me and i I'll be very impressed, but also very scared to see what other arcs in this story um, into your eternity can top this Gugu arc. I don't know if I can handle, like, my heart probably can't handle anything more than the Gugu arc, so I kind of hope nothing is ever as emotional as this. Um, but the way the show is progressing, I'm sure there will be something that hits just as hard, if not harder, than Gugu's story. But I loved everything about this arc. I think it was just the perfect one that we had in season one. And to make matters worse, you think the feels would stop there. Well, no, they don't. Because after Gugu passes away and we kind of get the the after moments um, from that fight with the knockers, Fushi panics when he hears Reen coming up to their home, their mansion, the farm, I don't know what you would call it. And he's in his Fushi form, but he reverts back to his original age because he's changed forms now so he's no longer aged up those four years he's gone back and he doesn't want reen to see him because he promised gugu that he would never reveal who he really is to reen so instead in his moment of panic he transforms into gugu at the last second and reen is so happy to see him and i should be saying that with more happiness in my voice but no it was incredibly incredibly sad and you have that moment where she embraces Fushi as Gugu and then the world kind of pauses so that you can have a moment into Fushi, Fushi's inner monologue. And he simply asks, why am I me? And I I was like, this, this, this like sucks so bad for him. He just hates the responsibility that's been put on him and bearing all of that weight 
um, no pun intended, Google, <laughs> 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 uh, bearing this huge responsibility that the beholder or the narrator or whatever has given him. And on top of that, having to deal with all of these deaths that happen around him that he never wanted in the first place. I just, I couldn't. I was like, man, you already tore me down during the fight. And now afterwards, you got to tear me down again. I can't get any lower. <laughs> <laughs> and I, that kind of brings up something that Perona asked in an earlier, I think in the, the March arc, is what purpose are you supposed to find in life if you live forever? And that's obviously in Fushi's case, like what he has to live with. Um, again, I think his ultimate purpose is for others to help others realize their purpose as we saw with March and as we see here with Gugu. Um, but it's, it's not a task that can be easily undertaking because like you, you have to see all of these people that you truly care about pass away. And not only that, like you have to keep up with the facade for those who, don't realize what's going on as it, as with the case with Reen, although she comes to the realization later on that, that Gugu has passed. You bring up a really good point that I didn't think about. Fushi hates death, obviously. No one likes death unless you're psychotic. Um, but he tries to avoid it at all costs. He doesn't want to face the reality of death. But as you pointed out, Puron questions the the quality of life that you can have if you're going to live forever. Um, because, yeah, these people are being ripped away from Fushi. But unfortunately for him, everyone is going to be taken from him, whether they die naturally like Puron does at the end of the show or they're suddenly taken away from him. So he cannot escape it either way. At least when, when you're mortal and you have a certain amount of time, you're probably going to pass away before other people pass away. So you don't have to see those other people pass away. You can mm -hmm. spend your entire life literally with those people. Fushi will never get to do that. So whether or not someone is taken from him prematurely or they die naturally after spending a long time with him, he's going to have to experience that either way because he's immortal. And really, at a you can question that from a certain angle. Like what value does that really bring you? Is it really good is it really better to be immortal at the end of the day? Yeah. Although in this case, like, he doesn't have a choice. Like that's yes. just so that's <laughs> why he's he so fucking frustrated. Yeah. And <laughs> it's yeah. the one choice that he doesn't have amongst all of the choices that the narrator has given him or allowed him to have. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it just doesn't make the journey any easier for him. But I think the silver lining in it is that he helps these mortals realize what their true purpose in life is and why they've been living and i didn't realize this and maybe this is light spoilers but fushi's kind of like skips from regular show <laughs> oh yeah either which even white-haired yeah um which is kind of crazy if you think about it but it's a great show i miss regular show yeah for anyone who doesn't know one of our corgis is named Rigby after Rigby That's from regular right. show. Even though he looks nothing like Rigby. But he acts regular. like him. Isn't that right, Rigby? He's <laughs> laying on the bony. floor. He's laying on the floor right next to us as we're recording, just mm -hmm. living his best corgi life. Step off. <laughs> um, a few more notes about Gugu's arc before we move on. Poor Boozman losing his adopted grandson. He even said, I can't remember exactly what his quote was, but he commented about wanting to kind of live his life with Gugu and I think commented something about like dying before him mm -hmm. and then Gugu dies before 
he does. And I don't know. It's just really sad. They made me connect with Boozman, who I was very skeptical about in the beginning of this arc. And that's that's pretty good. Props to props to the show on doing that. I was confused, though, as to why or how Reen knew that Gugu had died. I mean, either way, it's super fucking sad. I love them so much. And their final moment was so fucking sad and heartwarming at the same time. But I'm just confused as to how she came to that realization. My guess is that when she saw Fushi as Gugu and embraced him and acted like everything was okay, maybe that was her way of getting to say her final goodbye to Gugu, like a proper way of saying goodbye. Although to mm-hmm. me, it was more beautiful that her goodbye was them kissing at the very end of yeah. his life. I mean, we see her come to the realization when she embraces Fushi's Google form. So it, Yeah, because he doesn't act like himself. Yeah. He's not himself. So I think she knows that something's not right. And it just still makes me... I know like we've been saying that Google wanted to hide Fushi's true form from her. But I have... I feel like she had an inkling of what Fushi really was capable of. And not only that, but I think she's earned his trust, right? Mm-hmm. I feel like by this point, after everything that they went through, especially with this last knocker fight, I feel like they it would have been fine to tell her the truth about Fushi. But, I mean, Fushi did make that promise to Gugu, and Gugu's not around to change that promise. So maybe he was just really committed to keeping that, um, not having any real alternative. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know. To me, I, I kind of, I love the way the story ended. I, I wouldn't necessarily want to change anything about it, but if I were the one writing this, I would have just ended their relationship with the two of them under the rubble because that was just such a beautiful way to end their story and have Reen just accept and understand that he has passed away and move forward from there versus having this last bit of hope Google Fushi as Gugu acting strange to her and then walking away saying, oh, I got to go to the store. I'll be back. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like, I'm not trying to discount it at all. I still, I'm still fine with the way that it ended. I think it's still just as beautiful. But me personally, I would have not had that last piece play out that way. Yeah, I mean, if they were to have both passed away under the rubble, then they technically could have been together forever in the yeah. afterlife. But. I think, yeah, yeah the show doesn't but then always... But that would have made Gugu's efforts of protecting her, like, yeah. so futile at the end. Yeah, and the show, you know, it doesn't want things to play out perfectly for us, so... R.I.P. Gugu, you are a real one. Moving on to The Gospel of Tonari, which encompasses episodes 13 through 19, Aspiring to Go Higher, Jananda Island of Freedom, A Girl Named Tonari, The Children's Dreams, The Defeated, To Continue On, and Wandering Rage. After Fushi recalls March's existence by re-inheriting her form, Pioran accompanies him further on his journey when they are separated and smackledorfed into boarding a ship headed for the prison island of Jananda. Fushi is forced to join a gladiatorial free-for-all tournament in order to secure freedom for himself and for Pioran, but the island soon discovers his immortal powers and he soon discovers the demise of Perona when she takes on her form. Fushi later meets Tonari and her motley crew of young troublemakers who are accustomed to the island's morbid traditions, but is wary of their help in his prison break. He clears the second round of the tournament by overpowering his opponent, but spares his life so as not to acquiesce into the crowd's thirst for blood, until the knockers show up uninvited, where the kids' bebop crew and all the villagers assist Fushi in quenching their bloodthirst by taking down the discount groots and restoring his memories of March. 
After making amends with Tonari and the kids' bebop crew, Fushi uses his march form to find Pioran's prison cell and tell her to ready up for their prison break after his final match. But how the turns table, as we learn that his final opponent is Hoyase in all her hoary glory, who reveals that Perona's death was caused by her whore hands and who drugs Fushi to become the new whore leader of Dananda and convincing the crowd that he is at her whore mercy. After an out-of-left-field non-consexual sex scene, the kids' bebop crew attempt to save Fushi, but are caught in the act by Hoyase and her guards, who are in turn caught in the act by a sneaky Fushi, who reveals that Hoyase banged a Fushi sex doll and requests the crew, the island's children, and Puran's freedom in exchange for his imprisonment. She acquiesces, but drugs Fushi and a lot of them pre-boarding, because no one has realized yet that she really likes to drug people. Tonari manages to escape and heads back to the island alone to rescue Fushi, but forgets that he is somewhat OP as he has already escaped Hoyase's clutches. They learn that Jananda's residents have become zombie-like creatures influenced by the knockers. The kids, bop crew, the kids Bebop crew subsequently return to help the pair in destroying the knocking dead, but are rogue one in the process. Hoyase, as usual, makes matters worse by taking Tonari hostage over a burning pit of knocking dead and confessing her love for Fushi, so Tonari tries to anhero the both of them until Fushi saves them both and finally gives Hoyase a taste of her own medicine. In the aftermath, Tonari stays behind on Jananda to work on legitimizing its reputation while Fushi rolls Hoyase out to buttfuck waters and abandons her for who the hell cares as she herself turns into a knocking dead. I wanted to start off by asking, really, a tournament arc? <laughs> <laughs> Why not? It's an anime. And <laughs> it's only on, a matter yeah. of time before we get the beach episode, which we kind of got if you look at Puron's uh, flashback. Oh, yeah, that's you. <laughs> and, you know, on top of that, we always complain about tournament arcs, so I think it's safe to say that we think this is probably the weaker of the arcs that we get in this first season. Yeah, I feel like a lot of the fan base um, had the same reaction to the Tonari arc, that it, it was the weakest that we experienced in season one. And honestly, I feel more connected to Nameless Boy in just one episode than I do to Tonari after seven episodes in her arc. Um, yeah, I just, something about this one didn't capture my attention. I had a hard time feeling things on anywhere near the same level for Tonari that I did with every other character that we came across so far. And I know that sounds harsh. Don't get me wrong. It was still a really nice story. And she has a very sad backstory, of course. But I don't know. The connection, the fire that we got from the Gugu arc and the March arc and, and the Nameless Boy arc and even Pioran's arc just wasn't there with this one. Yeah. And obviously with it being a quote-unquote tournament arc, there's just so much blood that we get in this arc. It's like if Gugu's arc was like, disney's aladdin this is like ridley scott's gladiator film just like <laughs> the amount of again it's not like gratuitous but just the amount of blood and gore that we see it, it's kind of off-putting and i think that makes sense like this is another chapter in fushi's uh journey and his character development because Jananda kind of represents how death is used as this tool to rob people of their freedom and scare them into like fighting for it although i think hayase later insinuates when she reappears that death is supposed to bring freedom to people but you know like with fushi he he abhors death and he we learn like he abhors killing so it's not in his nature to serve this island's needs and that's what ultimately 
makes the island change its fate along with uh, the help of Tonari and her crew. So before we really dive into this arc, I want to get one thing out there, and that's the animation quality. Because holy shit, it took a really big nosedive in the middle of the Tonari arc. Actually, for a good majority of the Tonari arc, it was just nowhere near the amazing quality level that we experienced in the, the first part of the show, as well as in the last episode. It's interesting that it just so happened to be the Tonari arc where the animation quality dipped. What, I'm not sure if that was intentional, knowing that there were some uh, scheduling issues perhaps, because I think right before the Tonari arc, they actually inserted a recap episode, which is yeah. always a telltale sign that there's a scheduling issue or something going on at the studio where they need to f- cram you know, a, a recap episode in or skip a week because there's something that's being delayed or so they need more time for something. But it's just interesting that it happened to be the Tonati arc where this this all occurred. And so I don't know if they intentionally kind of did that, knowing that this was going to be the weakest part anyway um, to allow the animation to suffer on this one versus the other arcs or if it just so happened to play out that way. But I feel like it was already kind of a weak arc and then the animation quality suffering on top of that really just kind of dampened this part of the story for me. Again, I don't want to take away from the story, though. It's still very, very interesting, and we'll certainly talk about that. But um, I think it's uh, it's the elephant in the room that we can't quite ignore. That end, I think there was a lot more CGI used in this arc, especially with, I call them the knocking dead, which it just makes the animation quality suffer a little bit more as well. What I did really like about this arc, again, is um, kind of opposite to Gugu's arc, where we learned more about Fushi and his abilities. We finally got a lot of our questions answered about the knockers. Not all of them, but we have a better understanding of what they are and how they operate, um, especially with the the zombie-esque people that get taken over by them. It's so gnarly, though. Like Seeing the way that they get taken over and all that is just really brutal. Uh, but I do want to call out that we still do learn more about Fushi, especially his purpose, um, because the narrator guy kind of calls himself Fushi's parent and says that he's able to control his body, but not his mind. And so really after a slow and mysterious start, we are quickly learning more and more about Fushi and his abilities and his overall purpose. Case in point, like he can become Perona without being near her, but this confirms that that bitch died. Mm-hmm. She was a great character too, so I was very sad to hear that Hayase not only made a nasty return, but apparently brutally murdered Perona as a gift to Fushi. I mean, here she is, the resident Yandere of the show, <laughs> and uh, she certainly embraces that character type. But it was it was kind of interesting, you know, when Fushi learned about Perona's death and how she died, that he gets angry and loses focus for kind of the first time in the show. Similar to when Gugu got mad at Shin and it kind of was surprising for his character. It was interesting to see Fushi really fucking pissed. He never really experienced that emotion before, I think. Unless I'm missing something. Do you remember him being like really fucking pissed at the at anyone or anything before this mm. point? No, yeah, I think this is the first time we we see him kind of blow up, and you know I think he always like he always feels guilty for causing people's deaths, but in this case it he indirectly caused Perona's death because uh, Hayashi just has this weird fascination with him, um, and maybe that's why it sets him off because like it was a death that was unwarranted. I all these deaths have been unwarranted, but again this wasn't necessarily by his hands, and it's by this 
this goddamn bitch. <laughs> I completely forgot that she existed until she showed up in this part again. Yeah, and we see Fushi struggle throughout this Tonari arc with having to hurt or kill other living creatures, even though the narrator tells him that you shouldn't always feel remorseful for some over killing someone who welcomes or seeks death, although that's kind of a very morbid way of approaching that concept. Um, so I think he got pushed over the edge when Hayase kind of came into the fold and, you know, spewed some really terrible truths to him. And I, I think as, as bleh as the tournament arc was, my favorite part about it was the fact that it was a quick way for Fushi to learn to make new weapons by getting impaled by a bunch of them literally all at the same time. Mm. And I kind of thought about that. I mean, he he's done that in the past with other objects. But if you're going to be fighting the knockers, wouldn't you just run around finding every possible weapon you could and just stimulate your stimulate yourself, which sounds terrible, but <laughs> you know, use it to stimulate yourself <laughs> so that you can have this arsenal ready at any time. It he never really thought about that until he got a bunch of axes and swords crammed in his body. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, all he needs now is like to to blow himself up with an RPG or something. <laughs> yeah. One question that I had was that scene where we see um, Hayase basically sexually assault. Fushi. Oh my god! Yeah. And like, I had to read the synopsis, and I don't know if it's actually true, but. I think Fushi insinuates that it was just hit a shell of his body. But, like, I'm wondering what her motive was there. I don't know if, like, she wanted to bear an immortal child just knowing Fushi's abilities or that she was just so fascinated with him or whatever. Well, she did admit that she's in love with him. The whole whole Hayase thing after the March arc was... I, I don't know, man. It creeped me the fuck out, and I think that was the intention. All of the licking, and not only that, mm. but, like, her wild-ass tongue kind of flailing out everywhere. And then, yeah, when she, like, stripped naked when he was laying on the bed and mounted him and was almost crawling up his body, I'm like, what the fuck am I watching? I was squirming in my seat just processing this bitch and her yandere behavior. <laughs> it was so weird to me. And I almost thought that she had become one of the knocker like zombies based on her behavior but it literally is just her craziness making her behave this way Uh, yeah like her mentality has kind of spiraled because of her sudden infatuation for this immortal being yeah and she's a bitch for killing puron i mean puron corona and march so yeah so she kind of got her comeuppance when fushi just abandoned her in the middle of the fucking waters and was like peace out that was fantastic that was that was another great growth opportunity for fushi because he hates death and he thinks there's no way around it i mean he's like indirectly killing her i guess but he doesn't have to directly kill her while still punishing her for what all the things that she's done so i think that was a huge stepping stone for him i think it also added this element of coldness to him which honestly he kind of needs to be able to function in this type of world so as much as we all hate Hayase, I think she did teach him <laughs> some valuable lessons um, at the end of it. While we're on the topic of Hayase, let's just call out that piece at the very um, end of the show, the last episode, when Pioran and Fushi are kind of going through their last chapter together. We get a random scene on the beach of a hut with some guy bringing a plate of food to the person in the hut. He gets dragged into that hut, and that's all we see. 
that I believe if you take a closer look, there is a there is a spear that's sitting next to the hut, and I think the speculation is that that's Hayase now come back, probably as a knocker because she did get uh, there was a knocker tentacle that probably impaled her on the boat. Yeah, I at first I didn't understand this scene, um, but reading <laughs> reading the Wikipedia summary for that episode twenty, like I. It, it does say that it's supposed to be Hayase um, in her knocker form. It's just interesting that they dropped it in at that moment. It, it happened to, in my eyes, it happened at such a random moment in that episode that I was kind of confused. I actually forgot about it until I was recapping and, and putting together my notes. I'm like, oh yeah, there was a, a random scene of a hut and a guy getting dragged into it. So that makes me wonder because the knockers, when they take over humans, they tend to behave like undead. But here we have Hayase, who still has enough of a mental capacity to make it into a hut with her spear mm. and drags the guy in. So my thought is either, one, she gets taken over by the knocker but knocks out, and then this guy probably found her and rescued her, and she's been unconscious, and then she regains consciousness and then eats him or whatever when he returns back to the hut. Or the knockers have yet again evolved after their experimentation on Jananda Island with the human, the, the undead humans. They've evolved again to be able to take over humans, but keep them alive or at least keep them functioning to serve their purpose. So those are my two theories about what's happening there. We'll just have to wait till season two to find out. Yeah, or maybe Hayase is like OP as fuck too. <laughs> <laughs> and we just didn't know it, but yeah. I think it it's kind of like a teaser for what we'll see of her in, in season two and how the knocker threat continues to grow. Let's go back to Tonari, the, the focal point of this arc. We get her backstory, and it's sad, but it's probably the one that leaves the smallest impression on me of all of the backstories. We find out her dad is terrible and possibly killed her mom, maybe didn't kill her mom. Either way, he was uh, accused of it, and sent. that's why they were sent to this prison island prison school <laughs> or whatever um and then we see him choose to enter the tournament where there's a high probability that he'll die and leave tonari all alone and he still goes through with that decision in fighting in this tournament he then wins but in tonari's eyes as she watches her father celebrate his victory she realizes that he died long before winning this tournament and so she goes through searching for his quote-unquote body in the pile of bodies to try and convince herself that her father really is gone. He's not the monster that she saw in the tournament arc. Mm. And then he, she finds him later. Um, he gives her a gift. I think it's the notebook, right? Yeah. And she doesn't shed a tear for his death. She ignores him knowing the terrible person that he is. Um, she does cry a bit later. But I think this sets her up for being the the tough person that she is, having that tough outer shell. And I, I feel for all of that. I think that's a very terrible story. And she's trapped on this island and is trying to find her, her way to freedom. But I just can't get behind her. And I think the biggest part is because all of the other characters that Fushi has encountered have been good people generally they're just faced with difficult situations here tonari is faced with a difficult situation but chooses to be a sketchy person i'm not going to call her a bad person but she chooses to be very sketchy um and mislead other people kind of like a thief basically she's like a little thief or whatever that you'd encounter in some town the the trickster kid um this is what 
this, this is the type of person that she is. So after going through the experiences that we did with March and Nameless Boy and Gugu, it's hard to feel for Tonati the same way that you do for those other characters. I mean, what do you think? Do you, do you feel the same way about that? I just, I'm trying to justify why I'm having a harder time connecting with Tonati. Yeah, I mean, she's a pretty annoying character from the get-go. <laughs> um, but I think it's also because she's lived in this sort of dog-eat-dog world for most of her life that she can't always be so trusting of people. And that's just informed by what she experienced with her dad not being the person that she thought he was, right? And I think that's why initially she just kind of toys around with Fushi until she learns more about his true nature and what he's set out to do. And then that kind of gives her an about face. Um, again, Tonari is one of the, like a character that I'm not particularly fond of um, in this first season, but like I, I kind of get where she's coming from. And like, I'm kind of glad that by the end of her arc, she decides to stay on Jananda to to right the wrongs of of this society and turn it into i think she says like an island that can purify the dirty as a way to kind of cope with what she had to experience with her father um being a murderous bastard in that tournament yeah and again like i i still like tonari generally and she taught fushi a lot um, similar to the other characters teaching him a lot. And I think the biggest thing that he learned in his time with Tonati is that he is capable of saving people because you have that moment where she grabs Hayase and decides to jump into the fire pit in order to kill herself and Hayase. But Fushi is able to save both of them. And that is a huge growth moment for him because he has been struggling with this this idea that everyone around him dies and it's his fault. So I'm glad he was finally able to save someone and grow in that way. But part of me is like, why did it have to be Tonati? Why couldn't you save mm, yeah. Gugu? <laughs> don't get me wrong. I don't want Tonati to die, but I'm kind of like, why couldn't you have saved Gugu? <laughs> um, but I think, again, all, all of these characters have sacrificed themselves for, you know, in order to save somebody else. Nameless Boy, I guess you could say he sacrificed himself to save Joan because he kept Joan safe. I don't know. Maybe that's a stretch. March sacrificed herself in order to save Perona. Gugu sacrifices himself in order to save Reen. Here, Tonari sacrificing herself in order to save Fushi. And he finally realizes if I behave this way, if I try to sacrifice myself, especially knowing it doesn't matter anyway because I'm not going to die, then I can start to save the people that I care about. Um, that's that's the biggest learning point I feel from his interaction in his time with Tonari. So she taught him something very, very important. It's just, it's still very difficult. <laughs> Sorry, Rigby's, uh, he's digging into the carpet. He's nesting. <laughs> oh my God, Rigby. <laughs> um, what was I saying? So anyway, that that's the biggest takeaway from his time with her. And it's incredibly important. It's just, I'm I'm still struggling to feel connected to her and her story. You bring up a good point about Fushi coming to that realization. Because I think one thing that I didn't like about this arc as well is Fushi starts to become the typical shonen protagonist of him being self-defeating and saying like I, I can't do this anymore um, but I think in that context though it, it makes sense because with him 
saving both Hanari and Hayase, he finally gets back to what his mission is and understands like he has those capabilities. So that was my one gripe. Again, I don't like as much as we've been watching a lot of shonen anime. That's one thing about shonen protagonists that I find off-putting. The complaining instead of the doing. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I, I I feel that. Um, talking a, a, just a little bit more about having a hard time connecting with these characters. So the the kids, I don't remember any of their names. I apologize, but the kids that are close with Tonadi, all of them have terrible deaths. I think one of them survives, but none of those deaths hit nearly as hard as the other arcs. And I feel like as a viewer, I'm just more distant from these characters than the earlier stories or the earlier arcs. And those, the, their stories in the Tonadi arc just aren't as compelling as the previous ones. And we haven't got to know them as well um, as the rest of them. So to me, the, like these things just aren't hitting as hard. I will say, though, going back to the knockers taking over the people, it's super disturbing, especially seeing how people look when they're getting possessed and, and immediately after. Um, for example, I think it's like the red-haired chick. Her face and the noise that she was making when um, she was getting taken over by the the knocker tentacles, or the little girl with the eye patch, um, seeing her mouth agape with tears streaming down her face, or the fat kid with his arm amputated, and there's like a huge bulb on his arm where the core had entered his body. All of that was really fucked up. So from a physical point of view, I feel terrible, and their deaths are very very gruesome. But from a, an emotional standpoint, I I felt sad for them, but just nowhere near how sad I felt for other people's deaths. I actually felt more feels for Perona's death before we even saw the flashbacks of her getting killed, just knowing that she died versus actually watching these supporting characters die from the knockers. And again, to me, I think that's a huge testament to the lack of connection that we have as the viewers with these characters. I mean, it's difficult because you have all of these characters fit into one arc, whereas when the other ones, like it was like the March arc, it was mostly Perona and March that we identified with. Um, Gugu's arc was obviously Gugu and Rain, but then here it's like a, a whole cast of characters. And yeah, it, it. I mean, I wrote their names down, but I don't think that's important because again, they they follow the path of Rogue One by the end of this story. Um, but yeah, like it's just overall, it's still sad to see that they be, fall victim to what this island has become. And I think with the knockers taking over the island's um, inhabitants, it reinforces the the morbid tradition that this island has succumbed to in like kind of glorifying death because now it's like death has spread out across the island with the knockers infecting these people's minds um but yeah as as apocalyptic as this arc is it doesn't emotionally hit as hard as the other ones and in the final arc the gospel of puran which encompasses episode 20 echoes fushi struggles with whether or not to reunite with puran because of the dangers that he would bring upon her poor old heart and Beholder Palpatine's unwanted input doesn't help at all, but decides to have her accompany him to a tropical escape out of a need for companionship. Unfortunately, dementia starts taking its toll on his elderly mentor, though Fushi continues to care for Piran despite not knowing what the hell her deal is. 
Elsewhere, a man is attacked by an unknown assailant that he rescued from the beach. Looks like Hoyase is still up to her whore ways despite being a knocking dead. One day, after sending Fushi off to gather food, Buron calls out to Beholder Palpatine and asks him to reincarnate her into something that his orbital offspring will find useful. Beholder Palpatine warns her of the risk that the process will change her soul, but she accepts it and crosses into the beyond with a vision of her younger self until Beholder Palpatine encases her soul in a white orb. Back to reality, Fushi drops gravity in tears at the sight of Puron's deceased body and lives in self-imposed solitude for several decades until something comes knocking at his door. That was a knee slap. <laughs> <laughs> Damn, this final episode of the season. Um, Fushi going back repeatedly because he kept worrying about Pioran was so sweet. It was just such a cute moment um, that I think reinforces how how important Pioran is to him and how much he sees her as family. And it really is very sad and very scary that both Fushi and Pioran are faced with um, with her developing dementia when they have no idea what it is or why it's happening. I I can't imagine the confusion that both of them are going through in these these final moments yeah this show just goes back to slapping you really hard in the feels um with this emotional arc between fushi and puron and again i kind of identify it with it more because i growing up i've had maternal figures um in my life kind of like puron and you know they they kind of suffer from like the the issues and pangs of old age and so to see Fushi go through that with Puron, like knowing that they've become like family to each other in these other parks, it it makes it makes it really sad to watch. And then for Puron to realize this as she calls out to the beholder um, and says to him, like, I want to become more useful to to Fushi, that just hits the nail on the head even more. Yeah, my my grandmother suffered from dementia, and so I can relate to what Fushi is feeling in, in these moments. But again, it's it's probably harder for him because he has no explanation around it. Um, but I think the way he handled the situation and kept pushing on and keeping a smile on his face despite her freaking out or hitting him or being very confused, um, I think shows how strong he really is, maybe without even realizing it because he tends to be a typical shonen protagonist mm -hmm. who is self-doubting. Uh, we do get that image in the OP of the girl with the purple hair that I think a lot of people suspected was maybe Tonari in some way, shape, or form. But as soon as Pioran hit that guy who was trying to kidnap her or whatever in the head with her cane and we got a glimpse of her purple hair, I was like, oh shit, that's the character we saw in the OP. It yeah. was Pioran. <laughs> and then we see the 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 scene of her i think in the afterlife where it's a younger version of herself too and that just affirms that image um so it makes me curious to think like if she is going to return in some form in the second season but if she does like is it in a way that um we're not going to expect because i think that's what the beholder warns her it's like you're not your soul might not still retain all the memories of your, your past self or something like that. Yeah, I'm curious to know how, how all of that will work um, because, as you mentioned, she's put into an orb separate from Fushi, right? So yeah. it's not Fushi. So will she be her own orb um, and be a companion to Fushi or will he somehow 
cram her being into him as a vessel <laughs> so that he can transform into young Pioran. But speaking of the narrator, I was very shocked that he appeared before Pioran and spoke to her. I didn't even know he could do that. Although really seeing everything is he's seeing everything that he's done up until this point, I guess I'm not entirely surprised that he can choose or speak to somebody and appear to them at will. But I'm glad to see that Pioran passed away um, you know, in the way that she wanted, when she wanted, and still remembering Fushi, because I think she started to realize that her memories were fading, and that she'll still be able to assist him, hopefully in, in some way, shape, or form. So I thought that was a very beautiful way to, to end her story. Yeah, I think hers is an example of death, again, as, as fulfillment. So here, it's not caused by some happenstance issue. It's Huron acknowledges that she's reached the end of her life and, and has done everything that she had wanted to, but she still wants to help out Fushi in his mission. And so in a way, like she can still carry on her legacy, even if she has to like basically reset her game state here. <laughs> um, so this last episode was great yet as always. So, so sad and left us with a crazy cliffhanger man, I hate cliffhangers because I'm impatient and I want to know what's going to happen. Yeah, and it even it cuts as if like there's going to be a next episode. Yeah. <laughs> but not, the next episode's a year from now. Yeah, he, there's so much shit going down. Fushi aged decades into the future and he's fighting knockers with confidence and I have no fucking idea what's going on, but we will find out in fall 2022. So with all of that said, um, I guess I just have two final comments about the show i guess before we go into our ratings the first is again about the narrator uh the fact that he cooperates with fushi and doesn't mind helping him usually in these situations where you have a mentor and a mentee the mentor will withhold info or be very roundabout about things so that the protagonist or the mentee is forced to figure it out themselves but Fushi is already discovering literally everything about the world. So I can see why the narrator wants to help him out on some level. Um, plus, Fushi is the narrator's tool towards his goal. So I found it very interesting, you know, every time Fushi would ask him, where are the knockers? How far are they? And he would just point and say, they're, they're three miles that way. <laughs> they're right over there. They're coming. If you, if you want to move, you got to do it now. I think it's, again, the beholder he's willing to present Fushi with its information, but it's up to Fushi how he wants to use it. Um, again, he doesn't want to interfere with the free will that Fushi has. And so as much as he's hoping that his experiment will go the way that he envisioned for it, the beholder won't exercise control over him. Because I think if he were to do that, then he is no different from the knockers that are trying to control Fushi and um, the, the inhabitants of the world. I think he's striking that nice balance of allowing Fushi to grow, but also making sure that the world doesn't go to shit. So he'll, yeah. he'll tell him, like, yeah, the knockers are that way. Go that way or run away from that direction. Um, because, I mean, literally, if he didn't, then you know the knockers could take over and ruin everything. So... I can see him at least going that far in his interactions or his cooperation with Fushi, but you're right. There's He'll leave it at that to allow him to figure everything else out himself. Um, the other thing I wanted to comment on is, is just, I guess, an overall view of these various arcs. So I, I see Nameless Boy um, 
I'll kind of break these down at with with the relationships that Fushi had with each of these characters. So Nameless Boy saw Fushi as his companion. March saw him as her child. Gugu saw him as his younger brother. But for most of Tonari's arc, she saw Fushi as her tool, but then later on as her friend. Um, but so I felt that she was more connected to her own friends, that group of kids, than she was to Fushi by the end of the story. Understandably so. But I think that's, again, part of the reason why her arc hits less than the rest of these these arcs. Because there's not as much of a genuine, meaningful connection there. And when it does finally develop, it's at the end of the story after everything that they've already been through and they're saying their goodbyes. Um, and then in terms of Pioran, what would you describe their relationship as like as grandmother grandchild or like i i was struggling to figure out the right term for what fushi is to pioran i would say like almost like a mentor wouldn't you like, mentor mentee yeah i could see that like yeah. a maternal mentor or teacher student because she teaches him a lot of stuff including like how to read and write mm -hmm. yeah i could see that um so yeah there, there's a lot of great connections here i just you know, with Tonati's, it's a little, it's a little less special in the beginning. Um, so that was kind of a, a struggle, but I am glad that at the end of it, they did become friends. And I do hope at some point in their stories, they, they cross paths again, um, maybe down the road, decades down the road when Tonari is much older and Fushi is out of his uh, midlife crisis that he's got going on. Mm -hmm. And that brings us to our final thoughts for To Your Eternity. So how many May the orb be with yous out of 10. Would you give this anime? I would give it a 9 out of 10. I almost gave it an 8.5 just because the Tonari arc was a bit weaker and the animation quality suffered pretty heavily during that arc. But everything else about the show, from the different arcs that we experienced to the stunning animation to the beautiful music and soundtrack was amazing it was all amazing it was a wonderful journey and i'm very glad that there's a season two because i would love to continue on this journey with fushi because he's wonderful so yeah strong nine out of ten what, what would you give it i would also give it nine may the orb be with yous and with your palpatine spirit out of ten <laughs> what the fuck? <laughs> but yeah this was just an enthralling anime epic that i think excels in analyzing and capturing the essence of human nature um, through the lens of Fushi's journey. And kind of similar to you, I think it falters slightly with the Jananda arc and with with a Fushi starting to exhibit again those typical shonen protagonist cliches with his character development. But I think the good still outweigh the bad enough for me to still be invested in what lies next for Fushi especially with learning more about why he's refused to transform for like 30 years. And not only that, like learning more about the mystery that is Beholder Palpatine. Like I still think he might harbor some malicious intentions as I think Tonari had actually warned up Fushi about it too um, when he started telling her about his backstory. And so I'm wondering like, does he have the world's best interests in mind when it comes to defeating these knockers, it's again to go back to like a religious aspect. It's kind of like the contradiction of this deity that's meant to be loving versus feared, which I know is like a huge topic of debate when it comes to like Christian or even like Jewish um, theology. 
other than that, though, and all that aside, I think To Your Eternity is just one of the very few standout anime series from the spring 2021 season that was just wholly engrossing and captivating. And overall, I think it just really sticks out from the typical adventure stories that we see, not just in anime, but in other forms of media as well. So, yeah, I really enjoyed watching this Legend of Fushi grow and can't wait to see more when fall 2022 comes around. And that wraps up episode 51 of Strictly Anime. If you enjoyed the podcast and would like to support the show, then head over to patreon.com slash the Strictly Series and subscribe on your favorite podcast streaming service so you can be notified when new episodes premiere every Monday. Follow us on Instagram at the Strictly Series and on Twitter at Strictly Series and connect with us there or on our website, thestrictlyseries.com to share your thoughts on the anime we review. You'll also find more info on Strictly Jojo, our other podcast dedicated to Jojo's Bizarre Adventure. Thank you so much for listening and as always, stay safe, stay healthy, stay weeb.